Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I'm talking with Dr. Justin Sean, a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Virginia, about his work on immigration, immigration enforcement, and the concept of climate refugees. I also want to say that we just recently passed the 6,000 download mark, so thank you again um, to everybody who has continued to support this this project over the past a couple of years as we come up on our, our anniversary this summer. At any rate, this is episode 70 of Untenured Tracks. Yeah, so I think that right now what I've been most excited about has been co-authored work with David LeBlanc here at the University of Virginia, where we're thinking a lot about the causal effects of immigration enforcement policies on irregular migration levels. And when I say irregular migration here, I'm generally referring to unauthorized Migration, So migration that is not following kind of existing legal channels. And I think that that care with this language is important here, especially so that we don't fall into talking about illegal migration and getting into some of the problematic forms of talking about people as as illegals or using language like calling migrants um, aliens or other kinds of dehumanizing words. But, um, but that language point is a thing that I get very caught up in. But kind of the, the short of this is that uh, the, the kind of current work that I have going right now, thinking about these causal effects on migration levels of immigration enforcement policies is, mm-hmm. is something that, that I, I think has been very exciting. Okay, so um, I, I think everybody listening to this appreciates uh, the, the, the lengths that you're going to to, to get the, the language correct. Um, and I, I can see like when you're, when you're thinking about it, especially from like the cause, like a cause and effect kind of way, that, that, that tightrope becomes even tighter. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, and we've actually seen the language that we use being uh, or entering into the political discussion when the Biden administration actually has had to issue an executive order directing the Customs and Border Patrol and ICE to not call people illegal aliens. And so just the mere fact that the president has had to issue an executive order about just the words that we use mm-hmm. should signal to us just how charged this word choice is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it just like it, it, it sounds so similar to. Um, so I've been doing a lot of work in historical criminology lately. So it just it just echoes like lots of other policies uh, where we we tend to to make the crime into a noun and then just then (laughs) that's the people (laughs) right thinking specifically about like uh policies around substance use um and how much uh the word addict has really come to just get under my skin um really 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 bother me um so uh what what have you found like what are what are some of the the findings in your work yeah, so we we kind of started by analyzing the effects of border barriers, which can include walls, fences, other kinds of physical human-made structures at country borders, mm-hmm. um, the effects of those on refugee flows. And what we found was that barriers are actually leading to higher 
levels of refugee flows, mm-hmm. um, which is something that should strike us as very counterintuitive, especially yeah. because barriers get sold to us as this thing that is going to reduce cross-border flows. Um, now, what's behind that finding that we have is that refugee flows, when we at least talk about the measurement of refugees and, and movements of refugees, we are really conflating two processes. Mm-hmm. One being movement of people, uh, particularly we're concerned about people fleeing violence and persecution. Mm-hmm. And two, we're thinking about the movement of status. And this is where somebody who may have entered a country without legal authorization mm-hmm. might want to obtain a more regular status so that they can kind of enjoy more of the full rights and privileges of living in that country. A way to do that is to apply for, for asylum. And asylum applications, when successful, lead you to get counted as a refugee. Um, and so that movement of status is another mechanism here. And with barriers, we saw that there does look like there might be a little bit of a reduction in movement of people. But there's a big effect in movement of status in terms of people responding to the construction and existence of barriers Mm -hmm. with asylum applications as a legal tactic to enter or remain in their preferred destination country. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and so this kind of nuance here um, is something that sparks a a lot of additional questions that we're kind of following up on right now, but kind of that starting point of realizing just how counterintuitive the effects of border enforcement policies and immigration enforcement policies more broadly can be is something that I I think really should catch our attention. I have to imagine that people who have been uh, uh, championing the the border wall and and the the occasional sort of uh, uh, squadron of Republican governors touring <laughs> the border, I think that they would be a little upset <laughs> to hear this, right? Absolutely. And as we're following up on these findings. I actually have a strong suspicion, and I think that we're getting stronger and stronger evidence to support this, that part of why we saw the migrant protection protocols get implemented in 2019, and I'll come back to what these are. It goes by the acronym MPP in a lot of our discussions, so I'll flag that for now and return to it. But where I think MPP and its motivation kind of arose from was frustration from anti-immigration voices in the United States who have kind of come to realize that the asylum process is a way for some people to enter and stay in the United States who would not have been able to do so otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so with that frustration, MPP was a way to try to dismantle the U.S. asylum system and remove that channel for, for people to, to enter. Mm-hmm. Now, that policy has since been disbanded. Um, the United States court system has, has now ruled that um, that that was uh, was not a legal practice, mm-hmm. um, but the very fact that the Trump administration pushed so hard that they got it implemented in the first place is very telling about the frustration that anti-immigrant activists in the United States have with this capacity for the asylum process 
mm-hmm. to be a way to move around restricted immigration enforcement policies. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, I mean, I, I have to imagine a whole, a whole fleet of dissertations was launched <laughs> by, by some of these policies and and some of the ways that like white supremacy is is kind of overtly and covertly coded <laughs> into, into yeah. some of those. Well, not some, but a lot of the stuff that the Trump administration did. Um, before we move on, I, I have a a quick sort of definitional question for you. Mm-hmm. Um. So as as you've been talking, you've been um, uh, you, you spoke about refugees, and I'm wondering if you're if you're using refugee and and sort of migrant interchangeably, or if you have like a, a definitional distinction between. So I guess like I guess what I'm asking is, are you making a, a distinction between sort of the the structural causes of migration um, and and putting people into those types of categories, or am I just Way so, so it's a great question. I think that a, that a lot of different sources kind of think about this differently. Mm-hmm. I hold the view that migrant is the broadest category that we can use. Mm-hmm. And that within that is one type mm-hmm. that we can refer to as refugee. And when I am talking about refugee, I am thinking narrowly about how the 1951 UN Convention and some of its refinements in in conventions in 1967 end up defining this, where refugee gets defined as owing to a well-founded fear of persecution. And then there's some other language about violence um, and, and, and mm-hmm. some other things. Um, a, a person has, has left mm-hmm. their home country uh, and these elements of m- moving internationally mm-hmm. and fleeing due to violence or persecution I think are really critical for defining refugee as a specific thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we talk about this there is a movement right now to have people leaving their homes due to climate change to also be counted as refugees. Mm-hmm. But in raising that conversation, they're also fundamentally challenging how we should define a refugee. And in order for that to really stick, I think, they're going to have to get the 1951 and 1967 conventions to be amended to just completely change the formal definition of refugee that the world currently uses. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of a, uh, a sad, <laughs> a sad thing, right? I mean, uh, I, I can remember I, I had the opportunity to visit Panama um, a, a few years ago um, for work and and talking to folks there about how it's just a, a matter of time before some of the islands um surrounding Panama um that are are still um uh indigenous uh uh are just going to are going to sink away <laughs> and that yeah. the the necessity of the Panama Canal is is short lived because you know the the country is going to be underwater um and it's just it's kind of heartbreaking i think that like this is happening now and and a, a major sort of impediment to to helping people um grasp this or 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 manage this is sort of bureaucratic <laughs> paperwork over how, what are we going to call you you know what i mean yeah um, so i i'm very sympathetic to that view mm-hmm. i also think that a lot of the discussion in the end of trying to make climate refugee be a commonly used term, mm-hmm. I think it overlooks the challenge of how do you actually identify that given person left their home because of climate change specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if somebody, say, is not making as much money as they want on their farm, and, mm-hmm. and decides to leave their home country. Well, maybe climate change is in the background, but maybe the the direct economic component of this really doesn't make this kind of 
refugee in the same way. Mm-hmm. But then you, you've got the extreme end where, say, in the Pacific Islands, your island goes underwater due to sea level rise. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty clear-cut case where that would be a perfect category to include in our definition of refugee. Mm-hmm. But when we get into into this channel kind of through, say, agricultural output and one's ability to make a good living through farming, mm-hmm. that I think is a really, really tough case to make. And I think mm-hmm. that's the, the giant gray area that mm-hmm. needs to be sorted out before we start including uh, climate refugees into this refugee category as a whole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you had wanted to flag MPP to come back yes. and talk about that more. So I uh, I followed the Trump stuff as closely as anybody, and this is a policy that I'm not familiar with. So um, I guess I'm ready to be retroactively <laughs> mad at them again. Um, well, so what this was is the Trump administration, and this is very much a Stephen Miller thing. Um, so definitely. Um, He's he's our usual suspect when particularly crazy anti-immigration stuff came up. Mm-hmm. And once again, this was him. But the idea was that they did not want uh, asylum seekers to be waiting for their claims to be processed inside of the United States. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is that they said, okay, we will accept asylum applications, but you have to wait in Mexico as we are processing your asylum claim. And this is something that for somebody not versed in some of the history of international migration and refugee flows, this can often sound like a very reasonable idea that the government is saying, we just want to process their claims before we let them in. But, and this is a big but, if you do that, the likelihood of someone's claim getting accepted if they have not gotten into the country first is way, way lower. So a very small portion of people who were placed into the MPP program ever actually had an an asylum claim accepted. In addition to that, human rights organizations like Human Rights First have documented, I think the number now is over 1,500 cases of gender-based violence that that happened to asylum seekers while they were waiting in Mexico for their claims to be processed. And then on top of that, we have all kinds of additional reports of cartels and gangs in in Mexico victimizing people that were waiting for their asylum application to be processed. So this was a horrible mess for the asylum seekers. The Trump administration claimed success because we weren't dealing with it. And so this is a way of saying that because this was not happening on United States territory, it was not our problem, and therefore th- there is no downside to this. But, of course, there's a huge set of people for whom like, this was a big problem. This was a blatant violation of international law, and a lot of people got hurt because of it. So why why is it that that folks who are not in the U.S. while their their case is being processed were less likely to to even have that hearing? Is it just like out of sight, out of mind, or is it? I mean, because it's this administration, my sense is that it's something more insidious than that. Um, so so th- there are a lot of administrative challenges. So there would be issues like a a hearing might be held. But the asylum seeker waiting in Mexico couldn't get their visa to get into the United States and show up at their court hearing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's horrible if you're thinking about that person's ability to advocate for themselves. Mm-hmm. And 
there are a lot of allegations. I think it's kind of hard for us to get kind of smoking gun evidence of this, but I think there's a lot of confidence that researchers and activists have of this that there is an out of out of sight, out of mind issue where it's kind of easier to say no mm-hmm. if you don't have to look the person in in the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so it it is kind of using using the system to further dehumanize people. Um, yeah. The other question I had about that about um, that you had you had mentioned the gender based violence that was happening, um, but that that wasn't violence being committed by U.S. officials, right? That was no, no. That that was happening um, inside of Mexico. So. Okay. Not something that U.S. officials were doing themselves right. or, or anything like that. Just wanted to make sure that I heard you <laughs> correctly. Um, not that that stuff doesn't happen either. Um, so you you had said before that that this work has has created lots of other questions um, yeah. that, that you guys want to explore. Um, do you want to talk about any of those? Absolutely. So. Where we are currently is in shifting from thinking about the effect of border barriers to now thinking about the effect of in-person border patrol on land borders. And we're specifically examining border patrol staffing levels at the U.S.-Mexico border to try to understand whether increases in border patrol staffing have an effect on irregular migration across the border, which we're measuring as migrant apprehensions. And the the assertion that Customs and Border Patrol makes, so CBP, their assertion is that when they are able to increase staffing levels, that they are able to decrease the amount of irregular migrant flows. Um, But this is something that we wanted to test, especially because there's a huge endogeneity problem or a problem of Border Patrol intentionally places more staff in border sectors where they know that crossing levels are higher. Mm -hmm. But there's also an effect that we think is possible and it's not likely of staffing on uh, irregular migrant flow levels. And, and so if, if there are relationships or effects going in either direction, we really want to figure out how to isolate the effect of Border Patrol staffing on uh, irregular migrant crossings uh, to really rigorously evaluate what that effect might be. That would be so interesting to see, like as a as a qualitative piece, you know, interviewing people on on that side of the border and just getting a sense of like how is that information relayed um, from group to group as people come and some people pass through and some people are turned away and like how how does information about staffing or I guess rumors about <laughs> yeah where there may be. Uh, Fewer, fewer patrols or, or whatever. Like, how, how does that pass from, from person to person? That would be so, that'd be so interesting. So mo- most systematically right now, I think that kind of our, best, our best guess here is that smuggling networks are some of the best, best it may not be the best word, but some of the most active distributors of information about this. Yeah. And I corrected myself there because smugglers do intentionally spread a lot of bad information. For, but, for their own purposes. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But they are also in a position to have the most frequent contact at the border and are most capable of monitoring border conditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's so. That's an angle that I hadn't even hadn't even considered as we were talking about this. That, that would be 
like I said, just as like a, a qualitative piece or, or just like uh, an oral history or something of like one year <laughs> of uh, a, a, like one crossing station, um, I think would be really, really fascinating for a lot of people. Because I like, obviously, you know, there's so many misconceptions that people have about how this stuff works. Um, yeah. um, thanks in large part <laughs> to the, um, the, the propaganda coming out of the, out of the white house for quite a while. Um, um, so I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like what, what is it about this, this work that got you interested in it? Like, and to be on with, like, how did you, how did you find yourself doing this type of research? Yeah. So I got my start by really focusing on the decisions that ordinary people are, are making during the conflict. Mm-hmm. And so I have a book that came out with Cambridge University Press in October of 2020 that where I focus especially on the case of Syria, thinking through how Syrian civilians select specific survival strategies during civil war, where migration I think of as one of many options that mm-hmm. people might choose. Mm-hmm. And going from there, I've realized from that kind of micro-level work mm-hmm. that there's a lot of variation in the kinds of responses that ordinary people have to threat, and, and a lot of creativity, really, in how people choose to respond that may then lead to, in the aggregate, kind of more variation in, in some of the more systematic responses to things like immigration enforcement policies writ large um, than what we might otherwise think. And, and I think that then, when, as I've kind of pivoted from a focus at the micro level on, on ordinary people, kind of up to the effects of government policies, that I've already seen from this analysis of the effects of border barriers that people are using kind of a a very astute tactic to respond to those of rather than rather than trying to always move physically around those barriers that instead of using that physical spatial tactic, that they resort to a, a tactic of changing their, their status using a legal tactic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so while that whole work was, was very kind of policy focused on the effects of government policy, I think that we could not have fully understood that without bearing in mind that people don't mindlessly respond to government policies in the way that governments implementing those policies often are trying to push them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think the people listening to this um, would want me to ask you if we could follow up on that a little bit. And so you said that migration was one response and that people had a lot of creative sorts of strategies. And so I think obviously one of those would probably be engaging in violence and, and fighting back or becoming involved in that conflict. Um, but like, what are, what was some of the stuff that you saw that was, that struck you as being like particularly um, uh, imaginative? Yeah. So I think that there, the social sciences writ large, I think have too long of a focus on the fight or flight metaphor. <laughs> yes. And so <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I'm very interested in kind of shifting us away from thinking about fight or flight dichotomies. And as, as we think through that, so there's, there is one element here. I'm thinking about work from people like Oliver Kaplan, um, who focused on conflict in Colombia, where people may choose to do things like organize protests or nonviolently confront members of armed groups to try to nudge them to to change their tactics or not abuse civilians. 
Um, so there's there's one element there where I think that we're currently seeing a very encouraging set of research that is focusing a lot on the many nonviolent ways that people organize to confront armed groups and try to persuade them to change how they act. Mm-hmm. There's a whole other set of actions that I really spend my time focusing on that I think of as non-engagement actions or just survival strategies where I really doubt that most people actually want to personally confront an armed actor, whether it's violently or non-violently. My, my intuition is, especially after doing over 250 interviews with Syrian and Somali refugees over the years, is that most people are generally trying to just get by and not get bogged down into conflict, violence, battling, and other nasty politics stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, there are things that one might do, such as strengthening your social ties with powerful people in your community mm-hmm. with the idea that that might grant you some additional protection. One might form stronger ties with peers within your community to, say, do more communal sharing of resources to help support each other mutually through hard times. In addition, there are plenty of examples of people rather than, say, outright migrating, engaging in, say, short-term movement strategies where you sleep in one place at night and spend your, your daytime living somewhere else. This is a tactic that I was just seeing this morning that United Nations sources are talking about this going on in Cameroon, where during conflict that they've had ongoing in some of their English-speaking areas, they have over 4,000 people who have been every day um, sleeping in one location and and spending the daytime somewhere else. Um, An example where we have some more in-depth research on that strategy specifically comes from uh, Baines and Patton who look at northern Uganda and realize that a lot of families have had the young boys in their family sleep in urban areas at at night in order to protect them from raids being carried out by the Lord's resistance army because by sleeping in urban centers, the boys would be more protected because that would be where military barracks would generally be located. Mm -hmm. And, And so... We, we can keep going on and on to lots of different other kinds of collaboration, leveraging of different network mechanisms, uh, and, and, and various kinds of actions like, say, hiding in, in different kinds of rough terrain. Um, all, all these things put together lead us to see that there are a ton of alternatives to migration that people have. And I generally found that people tended to prefer to take those alternatives to migration mm-hmm. as long as they felt like they could. And I think that kind of all of that work really informs my work trying to understand the effects of immigration enforcement policies as I really understand that in cases where people are moving under some level of, of distress or leaving some amount of, of coercion, you're not dealing with people who are just trying to maximize income. You're dealing with people who are often quite determined to reach their intended destination country. And I think that if you're wondering why 
so many migrants coming from, say, the Central American countries would be trying to reach the United States, even as the United States gets really harsh with its immigration enforcement, you have to bear in mind that you have very determined migrants who are trying to get out of and stay out of very dangerous environments. So let's talk about um, how you are have been able, if you've been able, to bring your, your research um, into your classes. So I, I have to imagine that students have um a lot of a lot <laughs> a lot of ideas about this from um from you know the very beginning um what's that been like for you so i, I think that a big thing that stands out for me is the need to communicate just how important language is mm-hmm. so plenty of students without even think without even thinking about it may come into my class using language like illegals, frequently talking about uh, illegal migration or aliens, etc. And so I do find it necessary to have some conversations about what language should we be using and why do we care about referring to this as unauthorized migration instead of illegal migration. Mm-hmm. And I think that taking such care with our language and word choice is something that students coming into, particularly an undergraduate class, have often not been exposed to people forcing them to be that deliberate about the individual words that we are using. And so I have found this to be really important to to dwell on, make it clear that I'm not just being arbitrary college professor that I'm actually doing this for a very clear reason that has real world implications. Mm -hmm. And so how do students react to that? So I've, I've found that I get a portion of students who are into it and follow along. There are plenty of students whose eyes glaze over very quickly Mm -hmm. and when they do, that's a set of students that we kind of have to do the unpleasant teacher thing of beat them over the head with it until they absorb it, which may not, may not reflect well on the teaching evaluations that I'm about to get. But it's one of those things where I think that, that learning value exceeds the, the hit that I may get on my teaching evaluations for being the boring professor who gets picky about word choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I find myself in similar situations frequently. <laughs> that I, I wish I wish sometimes that that students and, and a lot of faculty, a lot of faculty mm-hmm. uh, would 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 understand just how um, those seemingly like minor quibbles, right, that we're making mm-hmm. over over language can really snowball into much greater um, problems if, if left alone. Um, Absolutely. And, and we have ample evidence <laughs> of, uh, of uh, throughout uh, multiple institutions in the U.S. of, of that, <laughs> where, you know, some, some language being corrected or, or maybe just having a, a, a difficult conversation <laughs> uh, back when um, may have <laughs> solved a lot of problems today. Absolutely. Um, so, so beyond the um, the getting sort of the verbiage correct, and, and once you get into sort of the nuts and bolts of your work, um, how do how do students respond to that? Yeah. So, uh, I've been finding that there's there's a lot of interest in it, and I, I think that so it, given that I teach within a political science department. You have students who get trained in a kind of standard political science form of reasoning where they are hit with a lot of 
ways of thinking about the world that are intentionally trying to simplify the world around them. Mm-hmm. And political science, like a couple other social science disciplines, has a bit of a legacy of having started by way oversimplifying the world. And students get frustrated with classes that force them to think in terms that they know are more simplified than the world around them actually is. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, that's a difficult move for students to make. Mm-hmm. It's one that has some benefits, but we're not always great as teachers about showing our students why they have to get good about thinking about how to simplify the world around them. Mm-hmm. And plenty of students are trying to think through how to understand the world in its current level of complexity. And given that my work forces us to have a more complex set of conversations in a lot of cases than, say, a standard two-by-two table that social sciences as a a whole absolutely love, Mm -hmm. I think that when I talk about my own work with my students, there is a tendency sometimes to find it kind of refreshing that I am not also trying to confine the worldview into a two by two table. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I can empathize with that, with that certainly as well. Um, And it's, you know, it's frustrating, frustrating sometimes too, right? Like, uh, what we, we kind of joke about with our graduating seniors is that they're, they're graduating just when we've gotten you to the point where we can have <laughs> conversations with you and you're like, now you're starting to get it. And we we put all this work in building you up to this point where we can have these conversations with you where you get it. And then you graduate. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And we're right back to square one with the next, the next incoming class. Um, Absolutely. Because you're, you're, you're right. Like I, I think a lot of disciplines uh, are like dwell on on stuff that's too simple, um, kind of unnecessarily, uh, and I have suspicions for why that is. Um, and then students get frustrated, but then students also need to understand why you need to start simple so you can build up something more complex. Uh, you know, you can't you can't do your senior capstone project your freshman year. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And it, it just kind of mucks everything everything up. And I think we get we kind of get frustrated frustrated with each other maybe and um we're not we're not learning the way that we we are supposed to. But that's I mean that's cool though that you're you're demonstrating stuff that has no simple solution or no simple explanation. I should, solution's not not the right word. No simple explanation. Um and that requires them to kind of have a an apolitical, I assume apolitical, uh, yeah. approach to it. Um, so I guess that leads me, I've kind of wandered my way into my next question. Um, how are, I, I have to imagine that you've had students who want to come at this purely um, politically and kind of struggle with some of the ideas that like, you know, increasing border security actually increased uh, asylum applications. And um, this is something that this that the Trump administration did that was, uh, a gross violation of international law. And I, I have to imagine that um, uh, some students may not have been able to see beyond the Trump part of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is where I think a helpful starting point is that political science as a whole gets a lot of undergraduate students who at minimum when they start think that it's going to be a, a bunch of arguing about whether the Republican Party or the Democratic Party is is right. And a lot of being a political science major is unlearning that mindset. And so I think that fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, kind of just about every political science class is wrestling with that issue. And so students are getting hit on a lot of different fronts with the point that you have to approach political science as the study of how to understand why and how things are happening, not to, not to understand how to articulate what you think should be happening. Now, the what you think should be happening 
is something that political theory as a subfield of political science does engage with quite a bit. But political theory, for various reasons, sits a bit uneasily with kind of the rest of political science, where kind of both political theorists and non-political theorists struggle a bit sometimes to constructively dialogue with each other. But for, for the students that come to my class, I generally have students that are what we'll call, call kind of mainstream political science right now of being taught to think about political science as a study of why and how political systems and institutions function the way that, that they do. Mm-hmm. And that kind of mindset is one that, if you stay focused in that, allows you to kind of remove yourself a bit from the, oh my God, I hate Trump. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm just genuinely curious, like, why do you think there is a disconnect between political theorists and, and, and non-theorists? Do you think it's just sort of something that speaks to the larger kind of theory versus applied? Uh, I don't want to say gap, but... <laughs> I guess uh, gap just that so, kind of exists in, yeah. in the social sciences in general, or do you think it's something that's unique to, to political science? So I, I think this is kind of a political science thing where I often think that political theorists are just trying to do a different thing than <laughs> the rest of political science is trying to do. And we're often not even agreeing on what, the point of our research is. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have agreement on that first part, the rest of our conversation is going to be fraught. Yeah. And the, I think that especially as political science has become such a data-driven, both quantitative data and qualitative data-oriented discipline, the divide between political theorists and the rest of political science seems to be growing. In my mind, there's a political theorist listening to this right now who is like <laughs> shaking his fist. <laughs> I'm sure that there is, but also I've never seen the conversation go well between yeah. the two. So I'd be happy to be corrected. <laughs> It seems like, oh, don't invite trouble. <laughs> don't invite trouble into your life, Justin. <laughs> I, will, I will fall on that grenade. If there's anybody who would like to come on, <laughs> and any political theorists out there who want to come on and, and correct me on what political science is. And I was a political science undergrad, and this is, uh, this is news to me. Um, but that was also a billion years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so what do I know? Um, cool. So um, I guess as we, as we start to, to wrap this up, um, one of the things that I want to do uh, that I want to make on tenure tracks more about is sort of uh, asking people to, to tell us what do you think the, the public should, should know or, or understand about, about your work. So I guess kind of taking like, so I used to ask about like what are myths that students have coming in, um, and that that seems kind of like an unfair question. I think a better way to frame it is like, what do you think the public should know about your about your stuff? Like, what would you want people to take away? Yeah, so I, I think that I I really think about this in terms of things that I want to communicate to people in positions to influence policy, mm-hmm. and things that I would like a broader non-specialist public to know and to take away from my work. On the side of kind of specialist people able to influence policy, I really want not just the United States, but countries around the world to move away from thinking that prevention through deterrence is really a workable philosophy to guide your immigration policies. Prevention through deterrence does a ton of harm and it often does not do what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Even if you have a very simplistic goal of just 
reduce population inflows. A lot of harsh immigration enforcement policies do not do that. And so if you're trying to craft better immigration enforcement policies, we need to think smarter, not tougher. Um, sorry, on the, uh, on the public side, mm-hmm. I really want ordinary non-specialist people to bear in mind that when you see sudden large increases in immigration flows, that your mind should not jump to thinking that people are coming to take advantage of your resources and what you have. They're, they're not trying to, to hurt you in any way, that you're generally seeing that because you've got a large number of people trying to get away from very bad circumstances. And that in those very bad circumstances, people have a tendency to try a lot of alternatives to migration before they actually do it. And so when that migration finally happens, you should suspect that something is going on behind that. And so I think that if, you, if we get that thought on the minds of the broader public, that could be very, very helpful in trying to mobilize, say, more support, more humanitarian attitudes, more advocacy for options that, say, support or facilitate the integration and assimilation of new immigrants to make sure that we think about policies and strategies that create everybody wins scenarios and not think of this as a zero sum game. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's funny that you, that you mentioned the, the resources part of it because I, I, it's like I said, I've been doing a lot of work on like, and some of it has involved like reading political theory, right. On, sort of like revolutionary ideologies. And, and so just thinking of that there are people living in the U.S. still viewing the U.S. in terms of resource extraction <laughs> when ordinary people, like, like what, what, re, like what am I extracting from, from the land that my house is on? Like nothing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and that, that's true for the overwhelming majority of people. Right. But that, that mindset of like people are coming to take, X resources away from us. Like that's just not a thing. I don't think. Um, but you, you had mentioned um, uh, crafting policies or, or working smarter, not tougher or policies that are smarter, not tougher. So what do you think smarter policies might look like? So. And I realize that this is kind of an unfair question where yes. I'm like, solve the immigration uh, air quotes crisis that's not really a crisis. Solve solve this major problem, this social issue <laughs> in a podcast. <laughs> so part, part of this for me is that while there are there, some of their own issues with this, temporary visa programs that say provide options for for people to to enter the, the country temporarily um, can be very, very useful in uh, creating some, we can think of this in a way as kind of release valves that give people opportunities to, say, get out of their country of, of origin, say, um, make money, do, do various things to support themselves as well as uh, possibly friends and family members back home. And that, that kind of policy, so in the United States, thinking about programs like the H-2A and H-2B visa programs can do a lot of good in terms of reducing the desire to pursue 
unauthorized migration. Now, that I would view as a way to kind of reduce the pressure on the system. It doesn't solve everything, but there's a portion of people that you provide that outlet and we can give them an option in that form that is substantially preferable for their own livelihoods to pursuing an irregular migrant status. And there's been a lot of work that the Cato Institute has done to, to show that as the United States has expanded these H-2A and H-2B visa programs, that those visa ex- expansions ha- have occurred as irregular migrant crossings from Mexico have fallen substantially. And of course, this fits into a whole set of complex circumstances, but a correlation like this could suggest one area to think more about as one piece of reducing migratory pressures and uh, and kind of having a, a lower magnitude of kind of both people trying to skirt or avoid legal systems while having legal systems trying to actively stop all of that unauthorized movement. There, there would be a lot of things to add on top of this, but I think that that might be one of the quickest things that we could do to improve the current situation. It's, it's telling that like part of working smarter involves like being less cruel, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it turns out like there are things that you can do that help both our own economy and other economies. And it turns out too that when H2A and H2B visa programs or just uh, the, or that we just have, have programs preventing uh, migrant flows a- across the border, that there are a lot of American businesses that have a hard time filling their, their jobs and adequately staffing themselves. And again, I'll give all the caveats that businesses that are offering wages so low that U.S. citizens won't take them is a whole area of messiness that also needs consideration. Yeah. But when when we're thinking about the desires for a large number of people to make more money than they would back home, and desires that employers in the United States have to to hire more workers, there there are some some mutual interests there, um, and I think that my caveats here are very important for me to emphasize that there are certainly wage pressures that we would like to address too, and so. I'm definitely just sharing my thoughts on kind of one piece of a broader set of things that I think would be valuable to see happen. Yeah, I mean, like you were just saying, right? These are these are complex problems that that should not have um, a a simple solution or explanation. Um, but I've, I've taken up a lot of your time, so I want to say thank you um, for for spending some time with us today to, to talk about your work. It's fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show. Um, as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us um, positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So 
if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, um, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at UntenuredTracks or me at HeyDrWill. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.